This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. The legal information presented on In Legal Terms is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information conveyed does not create any type of attorney-client relationship. Please consult an attorney provider before making any decisions about your specific legal questions. Welcome to In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio, the show all about you and your rights. I'm Liz Gill. I'm with Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. Professor Gershon, we've got a twofer. We've got a twofer today on real estate on MPB Think Radio local shows. Yes, I understand that uh, Money Talks was talking about real estate, and we're really lucky to have Terry Little from Harper Little uh, on the show today. He he has been on the show before. Terry has a uh, background uh, also in insurance defense law, but uh, he is doing real estate clothing and uh, deals with real estate a lot as well. And it's great to welcome him to our show. Hey, Richard. Hey, Liz. Thank you all for having me. Well, we're glad to have you, especially, you know, I, I'm, I was kind of surprised. You, uh, Terry, this is a personal note. Terry uh, handled our closing when we just uh, bought our new house recently and did a great job for us. But, you know, the, I was surprised how many people are buying houses now during the pandemic. Apparently, it's uh, crazy. Know, My daughter just bought one, too. Yeah, I mean, it seems like housing sales are up. And so this is a perfect topic to talk about. And so, I, Terry, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got involved in real estate as well. Sure. I've been practicing since about 1998. My first job out of law school was with an oil and gas company doing division order title opinions. Uh, I then moved on to do the insurance defense work that you had mentioned earlier and did that for about 13 years and, and still do a little bit of it on the side. But primarily for the last eight years, I've been doing uh, real estate related work, and that includes uh, litigation as long with, along with the transactional work. And I just really enjoy that, that focus uh, on that area of law. Well, it's, you know, it's a, it is a hot area in a, in a town like Oxford. And so, you know, you, you do real estate closings, as I mentioned. Does, does Mississippi require the use of an attorney in a real estate closing? So that's kind of a tricky question. Um, you don't have to have an attorney uh, to do a real estate transaction, um, but you would need an attorney to write any sort of uh, title certificate. For instance, if you had a lender that wanted a title certificate or if you had a, a buyer that wanted to have a title certificate so they would know the status of the property, you would have to have an attorney uh, prepare that title opinion for you. And attorneys are the only ones that can write title insurance in Mississippi. Well, that's, you know, that's, I always find, and this is just obviously my bias. I mean, transactions go better when there's an attorney involved. I know people think maybe they'll save a little bit of money by not having an attorney, but usually you do, you do real estate litigation. So you've seen the other side of that when, when transactions don't go well, because maybe somebody didn't use uh, the right documents or whatever. I've seen a lot of people spend a lot more money trying to fix something that could have been done correctly the first time if an attorney had been involved. So yes, that's true. We're like preventive medicine. We really are. Now, um, so let, let's talk a little bit about, you know, preparing for a real estate transaction all the way up through closing. What, what to, if someone is, is going to buy or sell real estate, what, what are some of the first things they should do? And then, you know, leading up to coming to your office to close? Well, if, if I'm the seller on a 
trying to sell my property, the first thing I want to do is find out potentially how much I'm going to be able to net from the sale. And so to do that, I usually tell people to, you know, order a copy of their payoff on their mortgage if they have one, um, look at your property taxes and try to calculate what the prorations would be uh, that you're going to be paying to the buyer because that's the way prorations are done in Mississippi. Taxes are paid uh, at the end of the year, and so prorations are done where the where the seller pays to the buyer his portion of the taxes from the beginning of the year until the actual date of the transaction. Um, I, I would look at my real estate commissions as a seller and, and calculate what those were going to be. And I'd ask the closing attorney what his seller fees are. Uh, and then I'd calculate any credits that I might be giving to the buyer uh, in conjunction with the sale. And doing all this will give you a pretty good idea about how much you're going to actually net from the closing. I have seen people come in uh, maybe where they didn't get the help of a realtor and they're kind of surprised at the end what they would net from it. So I think doing all this at the front end kind of helps you to know, you know what you're going to be looking at when you actually do sell the property. Um, now, for, after doing all that, I would say the most important things for the sellers after that is to, you know, if you've got a home inspection, make sure all those home inspection contingencies are completed. Uh, if you're in the property, make sure you book movers and be out by the time of the closing. I've had people actually still occupying the premises at the time of closing. We've had to shut the closing down so that they could go and move out. Um, and then I'd make sure that I scheduled the transfer or shut off of utility services. And lastly, for sellers, we just ask them to bring a picture ID uh, to the closing so that we can verify their identity. And for the buyers, you know, they're looking at it a little bit differently. Uh, they usually need to line up a lender and get pre-approved for financing before they enter into a contract so they know how much they can spend. Uh, make sure they get a home inspection a licensed home inspector to make sure that the house, uh, you know, any any items that need to be negotiated or fixed, that that's handled at the contract stage. Get a termite inspection to make sure that you're not getting a house that's got termites in it. Um, and, and one of the most important things that I've learned recently is that if, if you're applying for a loan with a lender, don't go out and make any large purchases or obtain any sort of financing because that might affect your ability to close uh, with your lender at the time of closing whenever they go back and re-verify information. And then probably the last three important things, make sure you do the walkthrough before you get to the closing, bring two forms of ID, including one photo ID, and then bring certified funds to the closing. Um, we can't take personal checks. That is fantastic information. And closings, are so mysterious to me. I've been in two, and it always works out to uh, how much. What's it actually going to be at the end, and then uh, also what date it's going to be. You know, Terry, it's interesting. One, you mentioned that um, the lender will be you know checking periodically to see if you've got another financing. You know, they don't want to be lending money to someone who's also getting a loan from someone else. You know, or some other place. Um, and and uh, one of the things that we learned is that you've got to keep your your uh, credit open. We we try to freeze our credit and make sure that you know so to keep it secure, but you got to keep it open. And that made us a little bit nervous. So one thing I would recommend is that people don't let people know they're seeking financing for a house during that time because you know if somebody's out there 
thinking, wow, that's a good time now to, to you know, hack into their credit. That, that, you know, so we, I think it's got to be careful not to post things on social media and things like that. Now, you, Texas, so once you get to the closing, what, ha- what happens actually at a closing? So by the time we've gotten to the closing, we usually have, if there's a lender involved, we've gotten the lender's documents in. We usually prepare uh, what's called the settlement statement or the closing disclosure, which has all the figures between the parties. And, you know, it shows the money that we're bringing in and then the money that we're dispersing out to the various parties. And once we get approval with that through the lender, um, at that point, they generate their loan documents. They send those to us. We get them, put them in order, and and get ready to go into the closing to sign uh, with both the sellers and the buyers. That's great. And so, uh, you know, that it's amazing how smooth, smoothly that all takes place once people have done the work ahead of time. Um, what are some things that can go wrong at a closing? Well, uh, one of the things I guess that, that we have seen before is, is I had mentioned previously, don't go and, and open any sort of new credit uh, lines or apply for any sort of loan. We actually have had uh, instances where uh, somebody's changed jobs and then whenever they go to verify employment, that information has changed and the closing couldn't happen that day. It hasn't happened to us, but I have heard stories that uh, people that have gone and applied for uh, new cell phones and gotten new cell phone contracts, actually, uh, that dinged uh, their account uh, to the extent that the lender wasn't able to go forward with the loan. So it could be even small things that that might throw a closing off. Um, But usually by the time that we actually get lender documents in and sit down and do everything, all the contingencies have been handled and and everybody's pretty sure that it's going to close. We're discussing property law, real estate closings, exchanges. This is a new one for me with attorney Terry Little. So how long does it take to close on a property? I'll give you an idea next. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advising firm and co-host of Money Talks. For over 10 years, Money Talks has been answering your personal financial questions and sharing knowledge about money management. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. is in legal terms not everyone has a chance to listen to our show live if you've missed any of our program you can listen to the whole show at in legal terms dot 
mpbonline.org. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app, as are all our local shows. I'm Liz Gill here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. And according to Bankrate.com article, on average, it takes a homeowner 30 to 45 days to close on a property. And that somehow seems much faster than, than what I've experienced. This morning, we're talking about property law, real estate law, tax-deferred exchanges, commercial leases with attorney Terry Little from Harper Little. And we have four calls on the line. And remember, after a call ends, then the line opens up and you can call in to get your question answered. Let's go first to Sue in Beaumont. Sue, thank you so much for calling in to In Legal Terms today. Well, good What's morning. Your comment I'm not like question? To ask your expert there a question. On late night TV, I see these infomercials about how easy it is to steal a, a title to somebody's house. You forge a couple of documents, and before you know it, your, your title is transferred to somebody else. Is that so, or is that, are they just trying to sell something? You can buy this insurance about uh, for insurance theft. I mean, for a title theft. Is that true? Sue, I would say that that's probably false. I mean, it, you could go ahead, you could go into the land records and create uh, forged documents um, that might be hard for title abstractors or attorneys to discern, you know, who the true title is. But for the most part, um, there's there's counter checks or, or secondary things that we can check to see if. If there has been an issue uh, with the title or transfers in the property, um, now having said that, the whole purpose of getting title insurance, and I don't know if that's what the program's trying to sell you on. Yeah. The whole purpose of getting title insurance at a closing is to make sure that you don't have any defects in the title at the time that you purchased it. And title insurance, you know, unless it's an excluded coverage item, will provide you coverage up to the purchase price if you've gotten owner's title insurance or market value, current market value, the lesser of either of those two, uh, your purchase, provided that you get a policy of owner's title insurance. Okay, well, thank you. We appreciate you calling in, Sue. Next, we're going to go to Long Beach, and Don has called in. Don, thank you for being part of our show. Uh, what's your comment or question about real estate? Uh, comment, and I'll listen to the response on the radio. It's in reference to disclosures. There seems to be little to no repercussions in reference to disclosures. In reference to, let's say, uh, there may be a vague statement in there saying that the house is so old that you, it's suspected there is lead paint. Or uh, you find out later on that the house was used uh, for cooking crack. So now there's all types of contaminants in the, the house in the system. Um, maybe the house flooded at one point, or you find out that there's wetlands. Uh, some of your properties is uh, part of a wetlands. Um, but it seems like stuff that wasn't disclosed, that should have been disclosed, um, there just doesn't seem to be repercussions as far as you're still kind of either stuck with the house or the property. I'll listen on to the radio. 
Thank you, Don, for calling in. Um, uh, Mr. Little, what do you have advice do you have to people about disclosures? Yeah, Don's talking about the property condition disclosure statement that a seller would fill out uh, at the time that he's listing the property with a realtor. And you are supposed to, there, there's, there's a form where you're supposed to disclose known issues with the property. Uh, and the failure to properly disclose something could expose you to a claim of fraud uh, in the event that you're able to show that you knowingly didn't disclose something that you should have disclosed. Um, you know, there, there is a remedy. Unfortunately, it's usually litigation. And, of course, that's expensive. And uh, I, I think Don is probably talking about uh, practically speaking, unless you're prepared to spend a lot of money to prove a claim of fraud, which is a high standard uh, in the legal system, then then there's uh, you're you're basically stuck relying on on what the seller told you in his disclosures. Don, I hope that helped you Terry, Terry, with that go. information. Go ahead, Professor Gershon. Secretary, do you, do you think people? I've heard people talking about if they're uncertain about a house, they're buying an older house, something like that, to buy to hire an engineer ahead of time to actually do their own really thorough inspection. I mean, home inspectors look at things like the dishwasher and make sure they're working, but to really, if you're really worried about the structural issues, should somebody get an engineer? Yeah, if you suspect any sort of foundation issues, I would hire an engineer to look at it before uh, you know committing a lot of capital to a property. Uh, your home inspectors should go through the house and, and, like you said, check mechanical issues, check the roof, check for leaks, check for different things that, that might be disclosed uh, just from a visual inspection. But uh, if you do have any serious issues like that, you are best off getting an expert uh, in whatever field it is that you're trying to, to get an opinion on. And so foundation issues, you'd want somebody that had expertise in foundations. Foundations. Oh, you're, you're talking Central Mississippi Yazoo Clay. That that's a, a, a big concern around Jackson area. We're going to Gulfport, and Brad is on the line. Brad, thank you so much for calling into In Legal Terms. Go ahead. Hi. We've all had problems, uh, I guess, with uh, Hurricane Zeta. I've got two trees in my backyard. Um, and each tree is from a different neighbor. Uh, one house, the one neighbor, has the house has been vacant for at least 12 years. Uh, and I, I wonder who's responsible uh, for the um, for the cleanup and and, uh, and fixing the fences and so forth. Would, I mean, how do I find, am I responsible or do I have to uh, try to find the owner of the vacant house? So I think probably the issue, if you're trying to uh, assign liability to another party you, in, in Mississippi, I believe, like, for instance, if there's a tree that came down, you would have to uh, establish that the other party knew that the tree uh, was, you know, Decaying or otherwise unstable or a risk to property and life, perhaps, uh, in order to get some sort of recovery. Otherwise, I believe it would probably be defended under an act of God uh, type situation where it was an otherwise healthy tree that just got blown down in a hurricane. 
I see. Uh, I, it's half of a tree, and the other half, the base is rotten. It's a big old oak tree. Um, and, and the part that did come down just missed my roof by about two feet. And the, the rest of the tree that's ready, it looks like if it does come down, it's going to put a hole through the roof. Uh, but like I said, it's been vacant for at least 12 years. So... I, I would think that the property owner would have a duty to inspect his premises to make sure that he didn't have any unsafe trees on his property. Um, now, proving that, you know, might be the more difficult matter. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you, Brad. We appreciate you calling in. We are just flooded with phone calls today. It's lovely. Let's go to Loose Dale. And Jamie has got a call. Jamie, thank you so much for calling into In Legal Terms. What's your comment or question? Thanks for taking my call. Kind of a complicated question. Old family estate property was settled between uh, eight or nine siblings. It settled for the home and a couple of acres. The mother of the siblings was uh, still alive. Since then, has is deceased. And several of the siblings signed their parts over to one sibling, but some of the siblings didn't sign their parts over. So I'm not, I'm not trying to find an answer. I'm just looking for directions. Where would I go to start researching to find what siblings signed their parts over and what siblings have not signed their parts over? Sure. You can, you can find out the current status of the property by retaining an attorney to do it a title search on the property and that will reveal the current vesting information and if, if it sounds like there may be split interests uh sounds like there may Correct. be multiple parties that own the property right. and, and it's it's not we're just trying to see who who did sign because some of the siblings that did sign their parts over are deceased now and you know, children don't know exactly, so it's just kind of a complicated thing. But would that be attached to the, the deed at the, the courthouse? Would that where the attorney would start looking? Or Well, that, the courthouse, the land records are where the attorney will start looking. That, that information, if, if you've got uh, people that are purported owners on a deed and they've died, um, then, then their interest has passed one of two ways, either by the intestate laws of Mississippi, which is the laws that apply if you don't have a will when you die, or if you do have a will when you die and you provided for the transfer of the property at the time of your death through the will, then you'd go by that document and the will would have to be probated um, in order to transfer title. You've got to make sure that you clear any claims of creditors. So. All that can be found out and discovered. It may not be completely obvious just at the time that you've done the title search. Um, it would probably be discovered through follow-up with family members, through review of the chancery records to see if there's been any probates of wills. Uh, some, some matters can be cured by airship affidavits uh, if the person's been deceased long enough. Otherwise, you may have to probate either an intestate or a testate estate. So it sounds like this is a perfect opportunity for a, a, a lawyer that deals with land and deeds to, this is the direction we need to go in to get professional uh, advice and opinions on. We, we have handled the exact situation that you described, and uh, 
a real estate attorney, a probate attorney. Um, I think either one of those would probably be a beneficial consultation to see if they can handle such a matter. Okay, that's that's what I that's the, I knew you couldn't give me an answer, but you could give me a direction to go in. I appreciate it. Yes, sir. Thank you, Jamie. We appreciate you calling in. We're talking with attorney Terry Little about property law. What's a good practice you should follow before building on your own property? I'm going to tell you next. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org. Listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gershon is our expert host. I'm Liz Gill, and we do hope you subscribe to our podcast. All the cool kids are subscribing to it now. <laughs> There's lots of different podcasting platforms. I happen to like Podcast Addict. I downloaded it to my Android phone. I think iPhones already come with the Apple podcasting app uh, preloaded. But I touched the plus, and it took me to a page to search for podcast. Then I type in in legal terms in the search area. It brought up in legal terms, and then I was able to touch the photo and subscribe. We've got two little legal-looking columns. I'm notified when any new episodes are loaded up, which we usually do the afternoon that they air. This morning, we're talking about closings, leases, boundary disputes. We're talking about property law with our guest, Terry Little, an attorney with Harper Little. And we've got a couple calls waiting, but first, let's do this email. We got an email that said, first, $250,000 tax avoidance. Second, $250,000 avoid for spouse. Question, must I be a married person at the time of closing or married in the same year of the sale? Thanks. I dig all the MPB shows. All right, well, this is this is a tax question, so I'm, I'm sorry. i got to jump in. <laughs> I apologize. But, uh, you know, yes, uh, the, the Internal Revenue Code gives us a $250,000 exclusion from sale, sale of personal residence. So this has to be a personal residence. It's got to be a primary residence um, and not, you know, like a, a second home or a third home to get this $250,000 
um, exclusion of part of the game. So you go to Terry's office and he closes for you and you get a, a check that you got more, you got uh, less than $250,000 worth of gain on the sale of your home. It's not taxable. If you're married, that becomes a $500,000 um, tax exclusion on the sale of the home. The, when we determine marriage, we determine at the end of the tax year. So the key is determined at you know the time that they file their tax return also at the time they do need to be married at the time of closing as well but then if they get divorced at the end during the year they're, they're not filing jointly at that point anymore uh so um that's really why we look at um marriage kind of for tax year at the end of the year so people are splitting up but not divorced at the end of the year they could still file jointly for that year anyway terry if you i hope that's right uh, Richard, I defer all tax questions to you, and I'm going to start giving your name out whenever people ask me. Well, and the only thing I know about that is there was a Love Boat episode where they would go on a cruise to Mexico over New Year's, and they'd get divorced at the right before New Year's and then get married at the beginning of the new year. It, anyway, okay. <laughs> Let's go to Waveland and talk to Barbara. Barbara, thank you so much for calling into In Legal Terms. What's your comment or question? My question is, I inherited some property, and the property, it was six acres. And what happened is, when I went out and looked at the property, it looked like the person who was sitting right in the middle of the property who owned an acre infringed on my property. So I contacted a surveyor, and the surveyor did an aerial view, and he said that it did look like he was on my property. I have hired him to do the survey. He's going to do it in the next couple of weeks. Once he does that survey, what is my next step? Yeah, so you, you have an encroachment or a, a purported encroachment on your property. Is that is that the question? Yes. Yes. Okay. What what kind of encroachment is it? Where he has uh, a built a uh, what you call it a, like a mechanic shop, and he's cut down some trees and things like that. Okay, so he's built a building and, and cut down some trees on on your property. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> That's a tough one. Um, these things happen from time to time, unfortunately. So if your survey comes back and, and does show that he's on your property and he hasn't been on your property for 10 years such that he could adversely possess it, uh, then you could you could file an action to uh, remove him from the property and he could ultimately be required to remove the structure and there's a statutory penalty for the cutting of, of trees that you could also um, sue under uh, if, it, if it came to that. Okay. I, I always encourage people to, to discuss with the other party to see if there's some way that uh, they can remedy the situation. Obviously, uh, he'd be out money if he's forced to take down a building that he's constructed. Um, I, I encourage people to look to see if there's any way possible that they might sell a piece of the property such that buildings would not have to be torn down. Okay. Okay, Barbara, we appreciate you calling in, and I hope that 
answered your question. Uh, Terry uh, Little, why was the, are all encroachments difficult, or what was specific about her question that made answering it a little difficult? I, th I think it was more difficult in her situation because there would actually been a structure built on it. Um, you know, the courts, the courts are, they, they abhor a forfeiture, not that this is necessarily a forfeiture. Something's been built on her property uh, illegally without her consent and, uh, and, and encroaches on her property. I think ultimately if she's forced to, I think she could go to court and have the structure removed. Um, uh, but, but a lot of times I find that there's a solution that both parties can be happy with uh, that might involve the exchange of property uh, to, to try to give everybody the property that they were supposed to have without having to take down buildings or structures. Um, and so I just I always encourage people to look for alternative solutions than just going to the courts, uh, especially situations like this. All right, uh, Barbara, I hope you heard Terry's answer and uh, a little additional information about your call. And if you didn't remember, folks, you can always find our show as a podcast. You can find it online. Our website is inlegalterms.com mpbonline.org and you could listen to it on your Amanda Amelia device as a podcast also let's go to Jerry from Brookhaven Jerry thank you so much for calling into in legal terms what's your comment or question yeah good morning uh, this is probably for Richard because it involves some tax uh, Richard what's the difference between uh, leaving property to a child by way of a deed or by a I'm sorry by way of a will inheritance or in the other way would be deeding it to them and you retain a life estate well if you really in some ways no difference I mean they're both going to be uh that's really both property passing at death. Uh, if you retain the life estate, um, then what's going to happen is essentially you, you've made, if you've made an irrevocable gift to them of the remainder interest, uh, then that is going to give them a, a carryover basis. They're not going to get a step up in basis for tax purposes. So they would have to pay any tax on the, the sale of that at, uh, at some point. Uh, if if the gift was revocable, then they would get a step up in basis. So they're you know when they sold the property, they would only have to report gain to the extent it exceeded the fair market value at death. Uh, from an estate tax point of view, there's no difference between the two. Uh, they're both. If you're worried about the estate tax, we're talking about the exemption amounts 11.58 million dollars. Yeah. for a single person in 2020. So, I mean, it's it's unlikely that people are going to be worried about the estate tax, but from an estate tax point of view, they're both treated as property passing from the decedent because either way, you got it, you're keeping a retained interest. Hope that, I hope that was the question you were asking. Yeah, but so tell me again what, what the tax consequences would be if the property were sold later on by a child, uh, how that would be handled if, if you deeded them the property and retained a life estate. 
their basis would be exactly the same basis that you had in that that interest and so when they later sold that property they would have to report any gain that had occurred in your hands uh, on that property capital gain um, if if the property is passed by deed at death or passed at death then their basis for determining gain later will be whatever the fair market value is at death so all that gain that has occurred in your hands would be in essence forgiven uh, under current law so uh, there is some discussion in congress they may change that but i kind of doubt that's going to happen okay all right so let, let me just make sure i understand so if the, like the property was built in 1951 and it was uh, deeded with a life estate today and when uh the the i died uh and then they sold the property would the basis would be from the original cost of the house if that could be determined Right. It can be determined based on what the value of the remainder interest was relative to the um, to the uh, the interest of the, of the uh, life estate that you retained. Um, so there would be a completed gift of that remainder. Um, I think it's probably better if you're going to keep the life estate just to pass it at death. And that way they get the step up in basis and their basis will be whatever the fair market value is at death. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Jerry. We appreciate you calling in. Oh, I forgot to read my little teaser that I did before. Hey, it is your responsibility to check for easements before erecting or building on any area of your property. This information will not automatically appear on building permits, and applying for a building permit will not necessarily result in a search for easements in public records. But if you have a question, send us an email, legalterms at mpbonline.org. Where can you find out about real estate investing? I'll tell you next. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. Thank you for being a part of In Legal Terms. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app, as are all our local shows. I'm Liz Gill. I'm here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. Now, on November 16th, 
20, no, November 17th, 2020, Money Talks had their podcast. A real estate investment expert discussed opportunities in investing in real estate. You can find that podcast on MPB's Money Talks website, moneytalks.mpbonline.org. It's a podcast on the website or on the MPB public media app. On In Legal Terms, we're talking with attorney Terry Little from Harper Little Attorneys about property law, and we have three calls to finish out our hour. Let's go to Greg, who's called in from Rankin County. Greg, thank you for being part of the show. What's your comment or question? Yes, I've got a uh, self-directed IRA at a bank, and several years back I bought some real estate it's uh, Timberland my question is uh, when I get ready to get it out of the uh, IRA what would what will the, the process be to get the title you know back in my name it's in the the bank is a uh, conservator for the IRA so what steps would I go through and, and uh, what kind of tax implications will I have Terry, you want to talk about the title part of that? I can, yeah. I can talk about the title part of it. Um, basically, okay. you'll just if, if you've got a if, if it's in a conservatorship, you'll have the uh, servitor, trustee, however, it, whatever form that it's currently in, they will execute a deed uh, in that entity's name back to you individually, or or whichever uh, any other person or entity that you want the, the deed to go into, um, and, okay. and that will basically handle the title part of it for the tax implications i think richard's probably best suited to answer well you know the the property has grown tax deferred in the ira so assuming that you uh used uh pre-tax dollars and took a deduction when you put the uh investment into the ira then as you take out uh, that that property it will be taxable uh, so that's just something you probably want to talk to a tax advisor about that specific property because some of those gains may be uh, uh, capital gains as opposed to ordinary gains, which will be a tax at a lower rate. But there will be taxable. So you'd have to have somebody that uh, knew that specific property. And I can't give you specific advice about that. But when you take things out of an IRA, uh, when you put money in pre-tax, it's tax deferred. And yeah. So it's uh, you're you're really pushing off being taxed on the income until you pull it out. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you, Greg. We appreciate our Rankin County listeners. And let's go to Beverly in Memphis. And we love our Memphis and Tennessee listeners. Beverly, what's your comment or question for the show? I have an heiress of property. Uh, the uh, uh, property um, was destroyed in the storm, and now the, it's the land and everything there. But what I needed to know is all the siblings that's uh, uh, affected there, and, you know, uh, one person was taking care of it all that time. Now, you know, the taxes and stuff is so high and everything. So is is there a, a tax lien for, you know, because it's an heir property? Yes. Yeah, so you're asking about, I guess, what's commonly called airship property. Uh, that's yes. you know, property that's been owned by somebody 
from a long time ago. They've died and, and no escapes. Yes, in 92. Yeah. Yes. And yes. one so, person so, was taking care of it. Does it, it still belongs to all of the siblings, correct? That is correct. Um, you cannot right. adversely possess against a co-tenant. Um, right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, yes, that, so at this point, what you'd have to do. Is there anything that you can, okay, is what? Yeah. At this point, what you'd have to do is you'd probably have to retain a real estate attorney uh, to do a property search on the property, a title search, and, and determine what the current state of the title is. And then you'll probably need to go through a number of probates, uh, potentially probated cases for people that have died or heirs that have died if it was a long time ago. But this, this is something that a real estate attorney could help you clear up, uh, probably in conjunction with a uh, probate attorney. Uh, so now there's a lot of high taxes and stuff on there because, you know, it's just the land there now. So there's there's nothing to decrease the taxes or anything like that, you know. So if now it's just one, somebody just wants the property. What, well, what if, we so, so are you saying the taxes have been have not decreased since the structures have been taken off or, ta or taken down? No, it hasn't. It hasn't. Okay, you could ask you could ask the tax assessor to reassess the property in its current okay. condition and hopefully lower the taxes. But oh, but okay. the taxes are a super lien on the property. They need to be paid. Okay. And, and they can be what? And, uh, Taxes are a super uh, lien on the property. It, okay. Okay, and everybody is over 62 or so, you know. Would, okay, all right, then I hear you. I got you. I got you. I understand. All right, thank you. Thank you, Beverly. We appreciate you calling in. We have about one minute, <laughs> Professor Gershon. <laughs> Terry, what, what do you want us to know? I mean, now that we had some great calls today, we really appreciate this. So what, in, in, a, in that one minute, what, what do you want people to know about real estate law? I think real estate law, as far as real estate transactions and closings go, the most important thing is communication, communication with your realtor, if you have one, um, with your closing attorney. Um, just, you know, if you can get out in front of things, uh, by the time you get to the finish line, everything's usually resolved to the point that everybody's satisfied and everybody just shows up, signs papers, people leave with money and they're happy and, and the other side leaves with the property and they're happy. So that's part of the reason that I practice real estate law is uh, it's usually not contentious and, and we've got happy customers on both sides when it's all said and done. I liked your comments about before you bring in the lawyers, see if you can amicably make everybody happy if there is a disagreement, if there's a tree on your property, if someone's built a structure on your property, to try to come together to see how how we can not bring in an attorney to uh, settle the argument. 
Thank you, Terry. Go to the lawyer first. That's right. (laughs) Thank you, Terry Little from Harper Little for being a guest on our property show for In Legal Terms. That's going to wrap us up. This hour just flies by. Thank you so much, Java Chapman and Jay White, for putting on our show today. And so for Professor Richard Gershon, we're still the original social distancing team. He hosts from the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill here at MPB, but we hope you'll join us next Tuesday for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.